your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John, chapter 6. This coming Tuesday, November the 8th, we will be asked to make choices concerning who is going to represent us as we, the people, in offices at various levels of government, including President of the United States. As important as that choice is, there is a much more important choice that God calls upon every person on earth to make. God calls upon us to choose Jesus, to choose Jesus, to take Him as God, to take Him as God the Son, as our Savior from sin and the Lord of our lives. This call to choose Jesus is the recurring message of the New Testament and of every Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. And one place where this choice is laid before men is in the aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000, as recorded here in John chapter 6. The multitude was astounded at this wondrous miracle. And the people were thrilled to have their stomachs filled for free. But as Jesus indicated in verses 26 and 27 of this chapter, many were sadly more interested in the fact that they got free food than in what this miracle that Jesus had performed said about him. They were interested in getting free food by hanging around Jesus, and, but they were missing the opportunity to receive everlasting life by choosing Jesus. The communion service is all about choosing Jesus. By partaking of the elements, we are actually saying in a visual form that we have chosen Jesus and are trusting Him for life and salvation. It's my prayer that everybody here this morning could say that that is true in their life. And if it's not true right now, I pray that it would be true before you walk out of here today. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I'd like to look uh, with a, for a moment at John chapter 6 here, verses 48 uh, through the end of the chapter, and take note of four realities concerned with choosing Jesus. Verse 48, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that it, I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. 
Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? And then Simon Peter answered, saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. We find that the, the first thing that stands out here in this chapter is the fact that life is given to those who choose Jesus. In this passage, we find that Jesus calls himself the bread of life and promises that those who would partake of the bread of life would have everlasting life. They, they would not die. They might die physically, but they would never be separated from God again They would have everlasting life. They would have eternal life. So that's what he means when he calls himself the bread of life. And and in doing so, he contrasts himself with the manna in the wilderness. Uh, We find that the manna in the wilderness was given to the Jews uh, by God. And in fact, Jesus, as God, was involved in in giving that manna to them. Uh, That manna was real. But even more importantly, that manna in the wilderness was actually a a type or a a picture of Jesus. The life-giving properties of that manna was a picture of the eternal life-giving property of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We find that it wasn't Moses that gave the manna. Uh, Contrary to what the people were saying is they, they asked Jesus for a sign earlier in this passage. As he's fed the multitude... And then he begins to teach them, and they don't like some of the teaching he's throwing out. They said, well, well, Moses gave us bread in the wilderness, and what sign are you going to give to us? Well, the thing he points out is Moses didn't give them the bread. God did. In fact, Jesus had been involved in giving the bread. And secondly, how could those people, over 5,000 men, and, and probably women and children on top of that, they're asking for a sign? Hadn't they just been fed with with a handful of food? That's a sign. That's an evidence as to who Jesus is. It's a demonstration of the creative power, creation power, that that he possesses and what he is able to give. So we find that as eating the manna sustained physical life, we find that Jesus was the giver of everlasting life. It's one thing to have physical food, to keep yourself alive physically physically, But he's talking about spiritual life, a relationship with God uh, that starts in this life and continues on through eternity for those who will believe. He's talking about everlasting life, eternal life. And one of the things he points out in here also is 
talks about the level of commitment that's called for in choosing Jesus. Over in verse 40, we didn't read that, but take a look at it. It says, this is the will of the him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He's asking us to believe in him. And, and as he, he goes on with that idea, he uses the picture, and he talks about eating his, blood, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. If you move over from verse 40, in fact, I've got a line drawn in my Bible between verse 40 and verse 54, because the, the, the great similarity in these two verses, and it helps us to understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. It says in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Back in verse 40, he said, everyone who believes in me will have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You took those two verses together as parallels, and what do you find? You find that eating his flesh, drinking his blood, is the equivalent of believing in him. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about literally eating his flesh or drinking his blood. That would be cannibalism. He was standing right there in front of them, and he wasn't inviting them to come up and take a bite out of his arm. That's not what's in view here. By the way, he's also at that point wasn't talking about the communion service. The communion service wasn't even instituted yet at that time. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying we, we get everlasting life by partaking of the communion service, by drinking the juice and eating the, eating the bread. That's not what he's saying. However, the, the, the symbolism that's involved, uh, there, there is a parallel that, that is there, that this eating and drinking are, are figures that are used of believing. And the, although he's not talking about community, the, uh, com- communion or the Lord's Supper, the imagery is the same. Eating, drinking, is speaking about receiving, believing. You realize when you eat something or drink something, you make quite a commitment. In fact, there are some things that I don't put in my mouth if they don't pass the vision test. There are things that I don't put in my mouth if they don't pass the smell test. But once you take that and put that in your mouth, you know, that's a pretty intimate thing, isn't it? That, that, that's a commitment. You take it in, you chew it up, and you swallow it down, and it becomes a part of you. And, and nobody else can do that for you. Same thing when it comes to drinking. Uh, we, we find that when we drink something, you're making a commitment. You might... Uh, pick up a a jar of sulfuric acid and say, well, I'm going to drink this. I think it'll clean me out. Well, it'll clean you out. It'll it'll kill you if you do that. But when you eat something, you drink something, you're taking it in, you're making a commitment, you are making it part of you. And that's what Jesus is saying when he talks about believing in him, eating his flesh, drinking his blood. He's talking about making quite a commitment to him as far as receiving him, believing in him as being the God-man, believing in him as being the Messiah, believing in him as being the, the Savior, the only one who can redeem us for, from our, our sins. And so he's, he's asking for us to respond to him in faith 
in genuine saving faith. That's what this is all about. When he's talking about eat my flesh, drink my blood, he's talking about putting our faith and our trust in him. And he's talking about quite a, a level, really, of commitment. As we said, you eat something, you drink something, that, that's a pretty heavy There's a whole lot more commitment involved when you eat something as opposed to just smelling it. You know, you smell it, and you can turn away from it, and it doesn't do anything. So once you've eaten it, it, it becomes part of you. And if it's poison, it could kill you. If it's, if it's good food, it can nourish you and, and help to, to build you up. But he's talking about believing. The fact of the matter is we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not faith in Jesus plus anything. Uh, but it is necessary that our faith be a genuine saving faith, a commitment type faith, a, a trusting faith that we put in Jesus. It's got to be a genuine saving faith. And the genuine saving faith includes repentance towards sin as what we're, we're looking to Jesus to save us from. You might say, well, I want Jesus to save me. Save me from what? Well, save me from my sin. Save me from the penalty of my sin. Save me from the, the power of sin dominating my life. And one of these days, taking me out of this world of sin into His presence and glory where there will be no more sin and even taking that lousy sin nature right out of me and making complete, me completely like Him where I don't even have that tendency to sin anymore. By the way, that doesn't happen in this lifetime. That happens when we experience glorification. That happens when we go to be with the Lord. That's when we get the sin nature completely taken from us. So repentance involves uh, wanting to have our sin taken care of. Genuine saving faith involves trust, a surrender of ourselves to Him, trusting Christ with our eternal destiny, trusting Christ with our lives. I always struggle when I come across people that say, yeah, I'm trusting Jesus to get me to heaven. But they don't want to obey Him now in their life. And they want to trust Him with their eternal destiny, but they don't want to trust Him to, to walk in obedience to Him and, and follow what He tells them to do in, in this lifetime. Genuine saving faith involves dying to self and a willingness to follow Jesus Christ. If you trust Him, really, you're going to be willing to follow Him. In Matthew 16, verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's commitment. That's commitment. Christ calls for genuine, saving faith. He calls for commitment to him. That's what he's talking about here. And sadly, not everyone who professes faith in Christ or hangs around Jesus or his church for a while, necessarily it demonstrates genuine saving faith. Back in chapter 2 of John, we don't have time to turn back there, but you can look it up. Uh, John chapter 2, it says that there were those that believed because of some of the miracles that he did, but it said he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. Uh, they had a kind of a superficial level of belief, but it wasn't a genuine saving faith. Here in John chapter 6, it's the same thing. These people believe something about Jesus. Well, man, this, gave, this guy gave us free food. Maybe he can give us free food again. But there's no recognition in them 
that they need Christ to be their Savior from sin. They're not, they're not even aware of their sin problem. And they're not trusting in Christ for the sin problem. In, in, in fact, it, it says Jesus knew the ones who didn't believe in verse 64. And later on it says that some of the disciples turned and left him at that time. And uh, we find that the next thing is that uh, we notice in this passage the leaving of some of these disciples who refused to choose Jesus. First thing they did was murmur. They, they, they murmured because they uh, wondered about getting the sign. They, they murmured because of what Jesus said. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're actually going to the ridiculous and asking that question. You know, it's obvious that, that Christ was speaking in a figurative way. He, as we said a moment ago, he wasn't inviting them to come up and and take a bite out of his arm, but they're getting a little ridiculous in what they go on here. They, uh, they murmured as far as the, having the, the, the hardness of what Jesus was saying. Verse 60, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And I wonder if their, their, their difficulty in understanding or their difficulty in thinking it's a hard saying is because they really have a hard time wrapping their thoughts around what Jesus was asking of them. Or I wonder if they, they wrap their thoughts around that, but they thought, man, he's asking for quite a level of commitment. Man, trust him to the, the same way that we trust food when we eat it. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing for them. And so some of them actually turn and, and they leave the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he has an awareness concerning these people. He's aware of those who didn't believe. He knew their hearts. Christ has known hearts. Christ knows hearts. Christ knows our hearts today. He knows our relationship with Him. And uh, we can fool other people, but we can't fool the Lord Jesus Christ. He, it also tells us here in verse 64 that He knew who was going to betray Him. This, this blows me away. That Jesus knew the whole time that Judas was going to betray Him. But he lets Judas hang around. Judas helped with the feeding of this multitude. You realize that? He helped pass out the bread. Jesus involved him in that. That's amazing to me. You get over to the Last Supper when when Jesus tells all the disciples, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And the thing that, that gets me is none of them just turned and looked at Judas. Yeah, we always suspected that guy. That didn't happen. What's that tell you? That tells you how Jesus treated Judas. I'd have had a hard time doing that. He's perfect as God. I'm not. But if I knew Judas was going to betray me, man, I'd have been giving him KP duty. I'd have had him last. I'd have had, Judas, you're going to betray me. You're not helping to pass his food out. We'd have had him doing all kinds. Jesus wasn't like that. And and this was always continual, continual appeals to Judas. Opportunities for him to repent. And come to the Lord and really embrace. He followed him around. But he never really put his trust in Christ and believed in him as we needed to be believed in. He might have thought he was going to be the Messiah and give him a good place in his kingdom. But Judas didn't recognize his sin problem. Never really turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and always was the son of perdition. So Jesus has an amazing awareness here of what's going on. And uh, we find that he, he tells these people, he says, uh, talks to them uh, about this, this saying that he made. And they said, you're having a hard time with what I'm asking you here? 
And then, then the next thing he says in, in verse 61, he says, does this offend you? And then in verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? You think this is something that I'm claiming you need to trust in me? Let me tell you, something's going to happen one of these days. I'm going to ascend back to heaven where I came from. Judas didn't get to see that. These people that turned away didn't get to see that. But some of the 12 did get to see that, those that stood faithful. And what a thing that was for Christ to ascend back into glory. We find that the the last thing to consider from the passage has to do with some lessons we can learn about choosing Jesus. First of all, the absolute futility of not choosing Jesus. Some of the people left. A lot of the people left. They followed. They're thinking about getting free food. But when he starts calling upon them for a commitment where they were trusting him completely, the same way they trust the food that they eat and the water they drank, they take off. They go away. And then Jesus turns to the 12. Peter, John, James, Matthew, Judas. Are you going to leave me too? All these other people are leaving. They're not going to get another free meal here, so they're, 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 they're taken off. They're gone. Are you going to leave me too? And good old Peter, he speaks up. He speaks up, and he says in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Number one, well, if we, if we don't choose you, Lord, if we turn from you, Where are we going to go? We're going to go to the Republicans. We're going to go to the Democrats. Well, we're going to to go to the Independents. No, they don't have the words of eternal life. Jesus does. Jesus does. And and, and Peter recognizes that. You're the one. Where where are we going to go? We've had two funerals this week. Men that stepped over into glory a week ago. Norm Avery and Durrell Martindale. And you know what? The only thing that matters concerning those two men right now is that they chose Jesus. They saw themselves as sinners in need of a Savior, and they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me ask you this. If they had not done that, if they had not done that, what hope would there have been for them as they got down to enter over and leave this world and enter someplace? What hope would there have been for them if they had turned away from Jesus? What hope would there have been for their family if they turned away from Jesus? Man, I would not have wanted to preach their funeral. How much better that you could say they chose Jesus. And because they chose Jesus when they left this world absent from the body, present with the Lord, and because they chose Jesus one of these days, even that body that is going to be raised again glorified, incorruptible, resurrection body like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you this morning, if you don't choose Jesus, you're going to go some other place. You're going to go to Buddha. You're going to go to Muhammad. They don't have the words of eternal life. Buddha died and he's still dead. Muhammad died and he's still dead. Jesus died, he rose again, and he still lives ever, ever, and ever, and ever. Does that thrill you? Who has the words of eternal life? Jesus does. It's absolutely futile to turn from Jesus to anyone, anything else. He's the only one that has the words of eternal life. Words that he can speak and we can believe, calling us to himself, 
And if we'll believe Him, we'll trust Him, we'll receive Him and choose Him, we'll receive that wonderful, everlasting life. We'll have forgiveness of all of our sins. And what a great thing that is to have that from the Lord Jesus Christ. We also find that, that uh, he, Peter continues speaking. He says, not only we recognize, Lord, you're the only ones with, eternal, with the words of eternal life. Verse 69, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ. You're the Messiah that's been promised all through the Old Testament Scriptures. And not only are you the Messiah, but you are also the Son of the living God. And when he says you're the Son of the living God, he's recognizing Jesus as being God the Son, sameness in nature as God the Father. Man, how futile to turn from him. He's God. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one, the promised one, the one that's promised throughout the pages of the Old Testament as coming to redeem men and redeem Israel. And one of these days, set up a kingdom on this earth. It's going to be a kingdom of righteousness where sin is going to be wiped out forever and ever and ever. Wow, what a wonderful thing that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. To uh, reject him is to be utterly foolish. Another parallel with the manna here. We find that when the, the Jews were in the wilderness, the manna was provided for them. And it was there. All they had, God provided. It was provided supernaturally. All they had to do was go out and pick it up and, and, and eat it. Just believe that it was from God and it was good to eat and it wouldn't hurt them, it would nourish them, and to receive it, to eat it. If they didn't, if they didn't eat that manna, they didn't pick up the manna and eat it, you know what would have happened to them in the wilderness? They'd have starved because there was no other food out there. That's why God's providing manna. And by the way, God hadn't provided anything else. He provided manna. No broccoli, no corn, no bread, no wheat for bread, anything like that. Manna. God says, here's manna. You want to live? Eat the manna. Now, there is no plan B. Manna is plan A, B, C, D, E, and F. Eat the manna. Man, what a parallel to Jesus. Jesus has been provided for you and me supernaturally. He is God, the supernatural, sovereign, almighty God. And supernaturally, he somehow entered the womb of the Virgin Mary, conceived as a virgin. Went through the, the normal pregnancy period of nine months, born into this world. He did all that. And then grew to manhood. And he's provided supernaturally, and he's given to, to us to save us from our sins. And we're called upon to believe in him, to trust in him. And, and by the way, he did it all. He did it all. He went to the cross. He took our sins upon himself. He died there in our place. He cried out at the end, it is finished, mission accomplished. He did it all. What's left for you and me? Believe him. Believe him. Receive him. Trust Him, just like with the manna. And by the way, if you don't do that, if you reject Jesus, you will not only die physically one of these days, you're already spiritually dead, and you will move into the realm of eternal death where you're separated from God forever and ever and ever with no hope whatsoever. If you reject Jesus, if you refuse to trust Him, 
if you refuse to believe in him. And, and by the way, just like with the manna in the wilderness, God doesn't have a plan B. God has no other provision. There's been one provision made for your sin and mine, and that is Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. You reject God's one provision, there is no other. There is no other hope. for It, it is absolutely futile to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we, ought to humble, we ought to humble ourselves, really, before him as we receive him and after we've received him because we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand these things. We're dependent on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's something else that's incredible that's laid out here in this passage of Scripture. We are dependent upon the Father. Absolutely dependent on the Father. Verse 37 of this chapter says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I'll by no means cast out. Great promise there. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me that, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Uh, he also draws people to Christ. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Uh, we find if you move over to verse 65, so Jesus said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my Father. You know what we need? We need the Father drawing us to the Son. And if you're here this morning and you're saved, you know Christ is Savior. One thing it should not result in is spiritual pride, where we say, man, I'm, just, I'm so much better than everybody else because I've chosen Jesus. I've taken Christ to be my Savior. Well, yeah, you made that choice, but something else you ought to know. God worked in your heart. God drew you to Jesus. You've been given by the Father to the Son. You're part of the Father's gift to the Son. And you know what, how you respond to that? You say, well, first of all, I don't completely understand that. But how you respond to it? You say, thank you. You humbly say, thank you. Because, Lord, I know my salvation is not based in me. You know where my salvation's based? It's based in the Lord. Totally in the Lord. So we ought to be humble before him. We find that also there is a promise of everlasting life to all who will come. Somebody might ask, well, how do I know I've been given by the Father to the Son? How do I know that God's drawing me? Well, maybe the fact that you're here this morning hearing the gospel is God drawing you. Great promise. Verse 37, any who come to me, says, I will by no means cast out. The thing you need to worry about, if you're not sure you know Christ today, is coming to Him, believing on Him, trusting in Him. Verse 40, you're called upon, and the promise here is, anybody believes in Him, they have everlasting life, be raised up the last day. Verse 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So great promise is there. Great invitation that's given out. You know, if I would encourage you, if you've never chosen Jesus, if you've never taken him to be your Savior, do it now. Do it. Don't put it off. Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the rest of this day. If you've never chosen Christ to be your Savior, well, I'm here in a Baptist church. Say that I know Christ. Well, I'll tell you what, being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going in a garage makes you a car. 
We need to make sure we've trusted Christ as our own Savior. If you've never done it, do it now. If you refuse, uh, I, I, number one, I pray God will keep me miserable until you finally do surrender and take Christ to be your Savior. But if you refuse, we, we ask you refrain from participating in the communion service with us. Yeah, it's great to have you here. But the Bible warns in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we should not partake in the Lord's Supper unworthily. It, actually, when we receive, we drink the, the, the juice and we eat the bread, we're saying, I've received Jesus. That's what we're saying. That's what we are remembering. And if you've never received him, then that is basically, it's a lie. And we want to encourage you not, not to do that. Also, if you refuse to trust Christ, realize Realize there's something far worse than being excluded from the communion service today. And that's being excluded from the presence of God in heaven for all of eternity. And if you never trust Christ as your Savior, that's exactly what's going to happen to you. If you have trusted Christ, if you have received Him, remember the level of commitment that you made to Jesus. Are you honoring that level of commitment now? Are you following him? Even more important, remember the commitment that Jesus made to save you. He committed himself to the cross. His blood was poured out there. He took our sin upon himself so we could be forgiven. And I also encourage you to remember, the Father has drawn you to the Son and say thank you. Thank you. Take take a communion service. And take it thankfully. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the Savior we have in the Lord Jesus. And we pray if there's anybody that's never trusted him, they might do it today. And pray that those that have chosen Jesus would continue to walk in faithfulness before him. Bless them as we receive the elements of the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.